information and study, um, much in the same way that when we do a building project in Coleman Owen Construction, there is so much planning on the front end before we ever swing a hammer or uh, put up a board or anything of that nature. And so there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done um, in our study of God's Word. And so today, my sermon will be a lot of that groundwork because we will be studying this, uh, this subject matter from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 um, as Paul deals with another situation in the church. We, were, we learned in seminary that um, a, a phrase that stuck with me, I hope it sticks with you, and that is the, the phrase, context is king. And context is king basically means that as we study God's Word, you need to understand not only what the background is, but what has the author already said and what does he say in the future so that you can clearly grasp what the Bible says. Um, This past week, as we've been looking at the inerrancy of Scripture, we brought up the idea of how growing up in, in my Christian circles... It was often promoted that we just cherry-pick words and passages of Scripture um, in our lives that seem best to us, but we, ra- we rarely studied it as a whole. And therefore, when we fail to study the Bible as a whole, we miss the whole picture. And so, what I'd like for us to do today is break down and begin to understand this next uh, subject matter that Paul is dealing with. And of course, to begin, we want to think about why he writes. And why is he writing this letter? Well, he writes this letter to strengthen the church. These are God's people. These are people that have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. They are professing believers in Jesus Christ. And so he's not writing for his own uh, powerful ego to exert his authority. He's writing to challenge, encourage, discipline, and rebuke the believers in Jesus Christ in Corinth so that they may grow. And so when we read Paul's letters, we are trying to do the same. We are wanting the Holy Spirit to do such a work in our lives. And one of the things that Paul brings out in this chapter and and in previous chapters is the importance of the the function of the church, the body of Christ. And as we begin, I want us to think about how God has so assembled the church. We are, as we understand it to be, unified in Christ. Each one of us have gone through a progression, a transformative uh, change in our lives so that we all stand as believers in Jesus Christ on equal footing before the cross. We all stand on equal footing. We are all positionally, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are no less better or worse than the next person when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We are all unified in that way. We are all equal on that way. Matter of fact, you'll be reminded in Romans chapter 3, the Bible clearly lays out the equality of our inability to do anything spiritual before God. Therefore, when we need Christ, we equally need Christ. No matter how much we have, uh, 
we, we, no matter how much we consider ourselves a greater failure than the next person, actually the truth is we are all, as the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. So our, our position before Christ, before we've ever received Him, is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to come to, to the Father to seek after God in our own strength. Romans chapter 3, as it is written, Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Folks, that tells us that humanity is in a very dire position. We are all equal. We want equality in the world. Let's talk about the equality that we are all standing in the wrath before the wrath of God because of ourselves on equal footing. We all need Him. And we are desperately striving for all these other equalities and we are forgetting the fact that God is going to judge all the world because of our sin against Him, because of our treachery. And so therefore, we are all equally unable and unwilling to come to Christ. And yet, as believers in Jesus, we are equally saved by Him. Our stories may be different. The ways in which God saves us at different ages and in different circumstances. And yet, the same equal transformative power consumes us. So that when we are united to Christ, we are united with, with each other in the, in the equal stance before God. We are in Christ, the Bible says. Some people are not more in Christ than other people. Some people don't have a hierarchy of Christian positionalism before Christ. We all stand in the same position. And we praise God for that unity. So because we are unified in Christ, we should be unified with one another. Now the reason I bring all this up is because Paul is continually dealing with division in the church. And division in the church occurs, friends, because we forget that we are all equal. We forget that we are are united in Christ. And because we are united in Him, we should be united with one another. No matter the disagreements and the differences. But some say, but pastor, I've heard that the church is unified in Christ and yet it's also diversified or different. And that's true. We all have diverse backgrounds, cultural differences. We look different. We sound different. And those obviously play a part in our relationships, but they should never sever us sever us from the unity that we have in Christ. Our past cultural differences may make us look and act different than others in the church. For example, I've noticed in in, in our community group that that people come in and, and a lot of people come into my house and they take their shoes off. Well, that's very culturally appropriate across the world to take your shoes off before you enter into a, a home. It would be silly for me to be offended by such a thing because culturally that is acceptable. And really you could say hygienically that's probably a good thing to do. Right? 
And yet in the church, we see those differences of culture that play a part into our lives, and we oftentimes get offended by that. We get offended by people in our, in our own body of Christ that are culturally different from us. Some prefer, um, some prefer instruments during the worship. Some prefer hymns. I told you that when I went to, to India, I've told a lot of you that, that there in India, people uh, eat with their hands. And you're like, well, we eat with our hands, pastor. Tacos, hamburgers. No, in India, uh, Brother AJ understands they eat everything with their hands. And that takes, from an American Western perspective, that takes them getting used to. But I love my brothers in India. I love my sisters in India. There's just a cultural difference there when I want to use a fork and they don't want to. That does not mean that it should divide us. It does not mean that it should keep us from loving one another. But the truth of the matter is, is that cultural differences have always been a problem for the church. And it's partially because we oftentimes allow our culture to influence our new standing in Christ. So we allow the culture to impact our relationship with Christ instead of our relationship with Christ impacting our culture. And Paul will be dealing with this cultural issue in the relationship or in his correspondence with the Corinthians. Remember, we have entitled this study, 1 Corinthians, Struggling to Live in the World, but Not of the World. Because as the body of Christ, we are called, no matter what different backgrounds we've come from, being united in Christ to exemplify God's glory, to, to magnify God's glory in the world of sinfulness. And so as we look at these chapters, verses 8 through 10, we are going to see this cultural issue that rises up in Corinth as believers are contemplating certain things from their, their previous life, their past, that Paul must apply the Word of God to. Now, Adam gave us a great uh, primer. He, he primed the pump for us this morning. So let's look at this, this issue that we will be dealing with for the next couple chapters in verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now right there, Paul didn't give us much. So this is where in the study of God's Word, we have to jump off the diving board into a deep study of what that is. What does it mean concerning things sacrificed to idols? Well, when we understand this letter being written to Corinthians and the believers in Corinth, then we understand the circumstances that surrounded the Gentiles that existed in Corinth. Corinth Christianity struggled with the past life of the believers there who were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And when Christ saved them, they went from being polytheists to monotheists. They went from worshipping many gods with many names and many different practices to worshipping one god. And within that worship, there were sacrifices that were made, much like the Jews. These Gentile Christians 
had lived lives that had made it a practice to sacrifice to these gods. When I was in seminary, we had a very unique um, opportunity to go to a Hindu, uh, a Hindu temple in uh, Cordova on, on Highway 64. You drive past it, you probably don't even know it's there. And the opportunity that we had was to go to the Hindu temple and to talk there with the religious leaders and just experience that as seminary students. We would ask him questions. He would answer those questions about Hinduism. And one of the things that just like stands out from the very beginning is you walk into the main building is all the the Hindu idols that were surrounding the area. And there before these different multicolored, beautifully ornate uh, idols of the Hindu gods were groceries laying there at the feet on the floor of these statues. I mean, you could see gallons of milk and fruit and all these different things that were the sacrifices that were made. And, and as, a, as a Southern Baptist boy that had never even experienced something any remotely to that, it blew my mind to experience it. And it showed me the, the devotion of the Hindu people And it it gave me an understanding and it gave me a curiosity about the very things in which they were doing. Well, these Gentiles that in Corinth, they were living lives very similar where they were a part of a system of belief that required them as they're in their worship to sacrifice to these idols. And a part of that worship and that sacrifice was them presenting meat on the altar of these gods for their worship. Worshiping the idols of these Roman and Greek deities. Now we'll deal more next week in detail about those false gods. But Paul is dealing with, in the first three verses... The subject matter, things sacrificed to idols. He'll, he'll use words like, you know, we ask ourselves, what things? He uses wording that helps us understand that it, it, it is uh, focusing on the food that was offered to idols. So particularly, the food that was offered. And even more particularly, in verse 13, the meat that was offered to the idols. So what is this big deal about the meat offered to idols. Well, as I said, these Corinthians before Christ were those that would participate in the pagan worship of many gods. And it included these sacrifices that were made, this meat that was given. Well, when giving the meat to the the temple priest of these pagan deities... They would take that meat and they would divide it up and they would put part of that meat on the altar for it to be burned up as the offering. And then they would take another portion of that meat and they would place it on what was called the table of the gods. And the final portion that was divided was given back to the worshiper. And they would consume that meat in their own privacy. They would have a feast and and they would invite friends and family and they would have like a dinner party. Now, one of the belief systems of these these pagan worshipers was that there were literally the presence of their gods in the meat 
that they were consuming. Okay? They believed that they were communing with those gods. And by doing so, that literally part of the presence of that deity was in the meat. So therefore, then consuming it was, been, was them uh, uh, intimately connecting with that deity. So they would have a private um, dinner party, as I called it. But they were also influenced in such a way where the, the portion of the meat that was given to the priests that was left at the temple, that as I said, was placed on the altar. Part of it was burned, part of it was given on the table of the gods, and the priests were allowed to eat that there in the, the temple. Well, they didn't eat all of it. So what they did is to make money for the temple, they would take some portions of that meat and they would take it to the market and they would sell it. Okay? So if you're following me, the meat was given back to the people that were worshipers. Other parts of the meat were given to the market and was redistributed for sale in the community. Alright? So what you have then is you have this... Uh, change of culture, this transformation in when Christ comes into the world and He begins to save people and, inc- and bring them into and unite them to the church. Because what happens is, is now the new belief system in Christ comes clashing against this polytheistic religion where the deities, or as Paul calls them, the demons possess this meat that had been eaten. And so all of a sudden now the Christians that had been Gentiles were concerned, what do we do about this meat? And you can relate to this because we are all socially still connected in some way to things from our previous life before Christ. For example, if you were a successful athlete and Christ saves you, Well, you begin to see the culture of sports and and athleticism rub against your devotion to Christ. For example, if you are um, called to be a believer in Jesus Christ and play basketball games or football games on a Sunday, well, now your faith in Christ is rubbing against your devotion to the sports world. And you have to begin to make decisions. What does God want me to do? How can I be faithful to what Christ has saved me from and still be a participant in this system of athletics that I had been involved in my whole life? That's just an example. Well, for the Corinthian believers, this meat offered to idols was a big deal. And the reason why is because these uh, gatherings that they would participate in oftentimes were just social gatherings where they were getting together with their friends and family. Some of these friends and family were not Christians. They were still worshiping these pagan deities. And guess what they were serving at the party? They were serving the meat that had been offered to idols. So all of a sudden now you're attending a social party, you're at a dinner gathering, and there's meat offered to idols, and you have a choice to make. What does God, what was the Lord Jesus Christ want me to do about this meat? Should I eat it? Should I not eat it? What do I need to do? Everybody trekking with me so far? Good. So, then comes the problem 
that Paul has to deal with in the letter. And that is the problem of arrogance, of knowledge. And this is what Paul deals with in the first three verses before he even gets to the issue of should you or should you not eat the meat offered to idols, Paul, as a spiritual detective of these people, has to first deal with the arrogance of the people who he has written to and corresponded with. See, word has obviously gotten to Paul through his correspondence with the Corinthians that there were some in Corinth who had been boastful and arrogant in regards to meat being offered to idols. In other words, they claimed, as Paul says in chapter 1, and if you look in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by him. Paul immediately says, we're not going to deal with the issue of meat offered to idols just yet because we, I, I clearly detect a problem of arrogance in the Christian community. An arrogance that is causing division among the people. Now why was it causing division? Because the people in the community of faith had come to this new understanding of what the gospel teaches. And with that gospel comes freedom. A freedom in Christ. And with that freedom comes a knowledge and an understanding that there's only one true God. And so we have no reason to be a fear or to fear or be afraid of meat that so-called is possessed by deities or demons. A, a, a meat that someone might call possessed by demons has no effect on a believer who's possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's just meat. And so the Christians, a, a group of them in Corinth, began to, began to be boastful and arrogant about this. Not considering the love and the care for maybe new Gentiles that had come to faith in Christ, they began to be boastful. And so Paul as he has done throughout this letter, begins this section by quoting some of the correspondence of the people. He says, now concerning things of idols, he's giving us the subject matter, we know that we all have knowledge. Most scholars believe the, fa- the phrase, we all have knowledge, is actually a quote in the letter from the Corinthians to Paul. That's the argument. But Paul, we all have been given this knowledge. We all have this understanding now as people of Christ that we have this freedom, that we have this understanding. And so Paul has to deal with this arrogance. Because ultimately, for us as a Christian community, to have true unity and, 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 and compassion for one another, we must have what Paul says, we must have love. For us to clear, to, to truly reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not about having knowledge, it's about having love. But as we've seen, knowledge, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, it puffs up. It makes us arrogant. Our intellect and our mind allows us in the church to, to learn and grow and understand more and more about the Bible, but in doing so, cause great division 
because of our disagreements with our brothers and sisters in Christ. A division over knowledge that should not be so. A division that is demonstrated here in Paul's letter. He tells them that we should not be people who are divided. As they claim, we know, Paul, that all have knowledge. And Paul is acknowledging to them this knowledge. But when it comes to a person who has faith in Christ, we should not allow that division to impact us. Look at what he says. Yes, we know that we have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and makes us arrogant. Paul is identifying for us that those who truly think they know actually really don't know. Because when they think they know all things, they have failed to truly understand the Christian attitude that we truly will never attain full knowledge. It's, It's the way in which we say that we've arrived at something. Oh, I've arrived at this. I've come to a a climax of a full understanding about this idea and that idea. And it leads us as Christians in our intellectual, uh, being intellectually pompous to think that we somehow can arrive at full knowledge. But the truth of the matter is we can't. We will always be learning and growing. We are always striving to grow and learn and mature, and therefore we have never truly arrived. Pick a subject matter. Do you think that you know everything about the doctrine of Christ? Do you think you've fully attained all knowledge about His his humanity and His deity so that you can put that book away and move on to something different? No, friend. We are continually growing. And for us to arrive at a point in our lives where we think that we understand and that understanding leads us to arrogance, then we really don't even understand Jesus. Because Jesus was not arrogant. Jesus was not pompous. Jesus was not puffed up. Matter of fact, if you hold your place here to Ephesians chapter 4, be reminded of what we will constantly be doing in the church until we die. Look at verse 11. And he gave, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we have all attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So here we see the foundation of church ministry. Our passion as leaders and teachers is to help you grow up in maturity, but yet warn you that that maturity not lead you to arrogance and division in the church. Why? Because that arrogance and that division does not reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus demonstrated His humility. By literally stepping out of heaven into the world, He displays supreme humility. 
by taking on human flesh, by being born in a meager way, by living a meager life, teaching and leading people with no prestige, with no wealth, being faithful to endure to the end by giving His life and being hung upon the cross as a criminal so that He could die for His enemies. Paul tells us in Ephesians or in Philippians chapter 4, the very foundation of Christ's work upon the cross displays for us the idea and the theme of humility. That we should live as God's people, first reflecting upon the humility of Christ that He has displayed for us, and therefore living in such a way that we would be, be humble toward our brothers and sisters. Look at Philippians chapter 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on purpose. That's the unity of the church. How do we attain unity? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for the inter- your personal interests, but for the interests of others. How do we do this? By having the attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not re- regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a slave, and being born in the likeness, or being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So friend, let me encourage you. As you gain wisdom, as you gain understanding about the freedoms and the liberties that you have in Christ, as you gain an understanding of great doctrines, know first of all, friend, that you have not reached the Mount Everest of that understanding of those doctrines. That you are literally scratching the surface of the full and complete knowledge of God. Do not allow these things to lead you in such a mind that God God desires of you to have a big heart, but you've got a big head. Instead, focus on as Christ did, serving your friends and family. Serving your loved ones in the church of God. This is Paul's message to us. Not that knowledge is what we should seek to be gaining, but instead, love. Love is the very reflection that God has saved us. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, knowledge makes us arrogant. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known what he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So follow with me. Paul is dealing with the problem in Corinth about this division. And he's reminding the people that if you truly want to have knowledge of God, then you will show a love of God to the people around you. And that starts with, that starts with, understanding that you are known by Him. Now, what does it mean to be known by God? Well, it's written there in the perfect 
passive tense, perfect meaning an action in the past that's been continually and will continually have results into the future. Just as our salvation has occurred in Christ in the past with continuing results, but also in the passive sense, meaning it is done to us. We are not doing that in an active way. Therefore, to be known of God, to be known by God, is to be called out of darkness into marvelous light in the great doctrine of election. That He has called us to save us. He knows us before the foundations of the world by setting His love upon His people. And therefore, to love God and be known by Him will be expressed in our love for other people. This is the answer to Christian unity, not knowledge. You can all sit around with large brains and small hearts and never see unity in the church because we're not loving one another. We're not caring for each other. Instead, we're going to sit around and disagree about our theological differences and divide the church. But Paul says instead that our goal and our responsibility in dealing with differences and and, and situations like Corinth was dealing with is to put on love. The love of God displayed in Christ Jesus as a sacrificial or the sacrifice for us as sinners is the greatest example of love, considering others more important than yourselves. Putting aside personal interests to, to uh, sacrifice and care for and love those around you. This is what Paul calls love that edifies. I love the word edify because it's a construction term. It means to build a house. Literally, that's what it means. Love builds a house. Love builds up one another. In a relational sense, we are called to display the love of God that's in us because He has called us out of darkness to save us by His grace and therefore manifest love to other people. And that love, of course, is a reflection of us putting aside our differences in a way in which we can serve others. This is our great calling to build people other up in the to build each other up in the faith to consider the needs that other people have and put our needs aside so that we can serve them and care for them and this is the subject matter that Paul is dealing with here you have these believers that are struggling with what to do in this new found faith in Christ and they come to the situation of meat offers to, offered to idols. And Paul displays, if we can just give you a teaser to the, to the movie for next week, Paul gives us his reflection of what we must do. Look at verse 13 of chapter 8. This is a spoiler alert. If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. What is that? That's love over knowledge. Yes, does Paul have the freedom in Christ to eat meat that he knows is not possessed by demons? Absolutely. Does he choose not to do that? To put aside his love for a good steak? Yeah, why? Because he wants to serve his brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with such an idea. A new idea. An idea that, as he calls, my weak brothers... 
Why are they weak? Because they're babes in Christ. Because they're still growing in their faith. They don't understand at a level of of knowledge and wisdom that, that other people, mature believers, may understand. And so what do we do to them? Cast them to the wolves? Literally, Paul references the idea that they would literally struggle with seeing a a, a Gentile Christian sitting in an idol temple having a feast or a banquet. Walking by and be like, oh, I wonder what uh, Pastor Adam's doing over there in the idol temple. Oh, he's eating that meat that is offered to idols. Well, all of a sudden there, there's disarray in the mind and confusion. Well, why is Pastor Adam doing this? I, I love this man. He's my, he's my shepherd. And they don't understand what is happening. A mature believer is not putting aside the weaker brother's struggles and therefore causing that weaker brother to lead to confusion and, and difficulty. And so the whole point that Paul will be getting to about these practices, church, is that for us to have true unity in Christ, we must put on love. Seeking the betterment of each other. Not allowing the differences that we have with the understanding of God's Word to lead us to division. To lead us to to disarray in the church but instead to put on love in such a way that we might put aside the things that we disagree with. Listen, there are foundational truths that we hold to at this church. These are essential doctrines that we hold to. We say, listen, these, this is the gospel. You, you must believe in the gospel to be a member of this body of Christ. We have these things that we ask you to commit to as uh, foundational and core beliefs of this body of believers. But there's a laundry list of things on that list or that are not on that list that we say, we don't have to agree about that. You're going to have an opinion and you're going to have an interpretation about uh, X, Y, and Z and my interpretation may be a little different and we can still not be divisive but instead have love for one another. I can serve you. I can preach to you. I can care for your family. We can have a great relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what we have to do, church, is be different than the problematic churches and the divided churches of our day. We can't allow these things to divide us. You know, we typically always use eschatology as a great example. Some of you in here, maybe on the right side of the church, believe Jesus is coming back, but He's going to rapture us first and it's a thousand year millennial reign. Sorry if I put people in a category they don't belong. People on the left, Jesus is coming back. We're in the millennium. When He comes back, He's here for good. Praise be to Jesus. Christ is King. Somewhere in the middle, I'm not sure. You're, you're teetering back and forth. What's the point? That we're going to disagree on these things, but you know what we agree upon? Christ is coming back. Christ Jesus will return. He will come as King and ruler and reigner of all things. In His sovereign rule and, and purposes, we will all come to understand someone's not going to be right about that interpretation. But praise be to God, we were unified in celebrating and looking forward to the return of Christ. Paul wants to teach 
the Corinthians these truths. He will teach them about the great subject matter of Christian liberty that we will look at more next week. But as we move forward to that time, we want to be people who strive for love, who put on love, and turn away from arrogance and being puffed up about our knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as your people, we would reflect the great glory of God. That we would reflect Christ in us. The Bible tells us that we are being conformed to the image of your Son. And as people